6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of 2 John. Verse 5, we're making good progress here. And now I beseech thee, lady, not as, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which, that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. Another clue here. This lady was with him in the beginning, at the beginning of the ministry. Doesn't make sense. Not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning. You see the partnership implied there, that we love one another from the beginning. She was not a latecomer. She was there from the beginning. The we carries a provocative joint identity here too. Love is a commandment. If you love me, keep my commandments. Real love is a choice, not an emotion. I choose to love you. And when I obey, I do what God tells me to do. And he continues, And this is love that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment that, as ye have heard from the beginning, ye should walk in it. See, we should not presume that any of us are beyond the need for exhortation or encouragement. The writer here is encouraging her. Well, if that's Mary, well, she's the mother. No, wait a minute. What makes you think that Mary... See, dismiss the two extremes. She's not deified like the Catholics, but she shouldn't be disparaged like the Protestants typically overlook her. She's a human being with real problems. Can you imagine the pride problem she has? She's not presume that she's beyond the need for exhortation, for encouragement. That's what he's giving her here. You should walk in it. Why should Mary, the very blessed but very human believer, be any exception? Mary was subject to the same frailties as all of us. Pride and doubts. And thus also needed frequent encouragement, counsel, and perhaps exhortation. That's the suggestion. Gives us a, makes her more real, doesn't it? More alive. See, a tendency toward pride would certainly be her serious challenge. She's the most blessed of all women who ever walked the earth. Think about it if you were her. How could you help but not feel <laughs> some, somewhat of an elite? Huh? And yet, wow. What would be her thorn in the flesh, to use Paul's phrase? See, both truth and love can be perverted. And in view of the onslaught of the Gnostic heresies and doubts, they may well have brought unique challenges for Mary particularly. That her son really wasn't human. That he was really some kind of phantom. And all these things would strike especially uh, in her heart. So let's put Mary in perspective. You know, Simeon, his uh, hymn followed, A sword shall pierce through thine own soul also, and the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. See, there was a testing probation of character to her as well as to all others. That's what we see in Psalm 42.10 and elsewhere. There's also several places where there's a dismissiveness. Master, your mother and brethren are outside. And he almost says, what's that to me? Here, these are my brethren. There's almost a dismissiveness there. Same thing we saw at the wedding at Cana. 
See, her misgivings and doubts is implied during the accompanying his brethren as if enthusiasm was carrying him too far. That's in Mark and John. Moving on, on verse 7. For many deceivers are entered into the world, John says, who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Here's a clear response to the prevalent Gnostic teaching. Now, I don't want to confuse you. The term Gnostic really gets applied to these people a century later, but we're using that term because it fits, okay? They're not contemporaneous. It's a little, there's a little, there's some issues there, but anyway. But anyway, they were teaching that Jesus was not really a person, just a phantom. That when he walked, he didn't leave a footprint. And I love to point out that's scriptural. There were places that he didn't leave footprints. They're recorded in three Gospels. Well, he's walking on water, of course. I'm being a little flippant there. I believe in the spiritual gifts, minus flippancy. Okay. Christ is come. In the Greek, this, it's, this is present and continuous tense that's used here. Jesus Christ had come and still exists in the flesh. He always, and we, that's why we, we believe he, he's in the flesh today. In the Old Testament, Zechariah 12, 10, I, 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 they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. That implies he still has those scars. The only man-made things in heaven are scars. In uh, Revelation 5, when John is confronted with the Lamb as it had been slain, that implies he still uh, uh, he wears those injuries as a badge of honor. As a, as a, uh, his, the marks of his humiliation are the marks of his glory. In the first chapter of John's gospel, he emphasizes this. He says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Right up front, the Word. Right? In the sermon that we call 1 John, that we're going to get to later, he opens with a similar emphasis. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled the Word of life. Our, word, our, our, our hands have handled. See, the Pharisees were the conservatives of Jesus' day, and the Sadducees were the liberals. So think of the Pharisees, they're the law keepers. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They're the modernists or the liberals. Both of them, by the way, are in trouble. It's interesting that the Sadducees were the greatest enemies that Christ had and were the main instigators of the persecution of the early church. The Pharisees with the Sadducees were the leaders of the persecution of the Lord Jesus, especially the crucifixion, of course. But after the death of the Lord... Most of the Pharisees dropped the whole affair. They seem to have lost interest. But uh, in fact, many of the Pharisees became Christians. We learned in Acts chapter 3 and 4. I can't find any place in the Scripture where a Sadducee came to faith. I think that's interesting. If you've got, an ex if you've got someone who's legalistic, you can deal with that because Christ paid the price. You can deal with that. But if you come to a liberal who doesn't believe the Bible in the first place, uh, not much of a score, apparently. A Pharisee named Nicodemus was converted, as were many of the priests obedient to the faith. There were many priests. That means they're Pharisee. There's no account of Scripture of a Sadducee ever coming to Christ for salvation. The acid test of Sadducees was the resurrection, as it is today among so-called liberals. The prevalent Gnostic teachings would have been a disconcerting problem for Mary, of course. Why should she be, have any, be immune to doubts and misgivings, of course? Anyway, moving on. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. He's a deceiver and antichrist. That word antichrist is antichristo. And the, it's not a an 
Antichrist, the, the Greek has a definite article. He's really saying the Antichrist. The prefix anti really means instead of, not just against. Both are true. When we think of Antichrist, well, he's against Christ. The actual Greek term means in the place of Christ, by the way. It's interesting, though, that John doesn't use the word Antichrist in the book of Revelation. That should give us pause. We still use that label to be referred to one of the two beasts of Revelation 13. That's fine. Just recognize that John didn't use that term. There. Verse 8. Look to yourselves that you lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Notice here that there's something that Mary has she might lose if she's not careful. Is that her salvation? Of course not. But what is that? See, even Mary could lose her reward. None of us should take anything for granted. Can you lose your salvation? Absolutely not. John wrote the book on that in in John 6 and John 10. Nails it. But he's talking here about that which you can lose, which is your reward, your inheritance. We can't lose that which Jesus completed for us. But we can fail to retain that which we have wrought. Those things which derive from our own faithfulness. Every believer ought to be working for a reward and to be able to hear him say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's what I want to hear. Well done. That's not a comment on what he's done. That's already been done. No, no, it's a comment. Did I bear any fruits? The question. Moving to verse 9. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both Father and Son. Wow. See, John was not one to suggest that all religion's teachings are true in one way or another, or that we should not be critical as long as people are sincere. The demons are very sincere, right? And they tremble. To John, there was a deadly difference, and he that hath not Christ hath not God. Heavy stuff here. That's being addressed to Mary herself. Whosoever transgresseth, the uh, parabeno, the uh, to go beyond the limits is what it means. To go, to go past is to turn aside. To extend beyond the pale of orthodoxy is the idea here, and that's the characteristic of every cult. The difference between the occult and the cult. Occult are clearly satanic. The cults are those that pretend to be Christian and are not, and they all go. They all have this characteristic. They all find some way to deny the deity of Jesus Christ. Even Mary of all people should have had particular difficulties in this area, strangely enough. In any case, she certainly would have been drawn to the raging controversies over a great over the real nature of Jesus. Abideth in the doctrine of Christ. The word abide there, by the way, means to remain. It's intended to be a permanent arrangement. It's not something that comes and goes. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. Whoops, now wait a minute. You can muster a whole bunch of verses from the other epistles saying that a Christian should always be ready to extend hospitality. Isn't that being a good Samaritan of sorts? No, he's saying here, make sure you don't bring a false teacher under your roof. Now the question that you need to think about, is that a general rule or is that a rule specifically for Mary? Think about it, okay? See, let's remember that hospitality, especially in those rough times, was extremely critical to the ministry. 
the hospitality industry, as we call it, of motels and related services, that was all going to come later. The ends of those early days were neither safe nor adequate. Traveling pastors or teachers needed homes to stay in. Okay, so it's a more critical issue there, of course. See, Paul stayed in the home of Aquila and Priscilla when he was in Corinth, we find out. And, of course, the situation is quite different today. I might confide in you, most traveling speakers today prefer the privacy of commercial accommodations for study and prayer, which is rarely equivalent when one is being received in a private residence, however well-intended. Often I'll be traveling and someone will offer their home, Gee, as long as you're going to be in the area, you can, you, you, we have a, you know, an extra bedroom or something. And you, I, you don't want to be ungrateful, but those things always come with some, in, incur, some, some incursions in your privacy and so on. Frankly, as a traveling uh, 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 speaker, just as soon check new motel where I have a privacy. People can get hold of me. I can get the internet. I can study. You know, I'm in control of my surroundings. And so, just a thought. But Christians are admonished to open their houses to visitors all through Romans, all through the scriptures. But the context here is probably providing respite to itinerant speakers specifically. And uh, we're thinking of itinerant speakers specifically. We must not let the poison of false doctrine get into your house, is the thought here. I might tell you there's a colorful legend I came across concerning John's attitude towards a notable heretic called Serinthus. That's from whom the Serinthian Gnostics get their name. He taught that Jesus was the natural son of Joseph and Mary, not God, come in the flesh. One day at a local bathhouse, when Serinthus arrived, John is reported as jumping out of the water, grabbing his clothes and towels, and took off running and, and uh, yelled, Let us hurry from this house, lest it fall on us. Serinthus, the enemy of truth, is here. So that's, that's the son of Zebedee. You begin to get a glimpse. I don't know if it's a true legend or not, but it certainly is consistent with John's nickname, Son of Thunder. You know. Now the question you might consider, should a Christian pick up a hitchhiker? I'll leave you to chew on that one. That's one of those questions that doesn't have a right or wrong answer. But it is a question that you'll have to answer from time to time for yourself. Let's move on. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is a partaker of his evil deeds. Ooh, wow. That's a disturbing caveat for all of us. Goodbye. What does goodbye mean? It's a contraction of, of Godspeed. Goodbye means God be with you. That's what it means. Goodbye, God be with you. Goodbye. It's a petition for God's blessing and sanction. You don't want to say goodbye unless you mean it. And you don't want to use that on a false teacher. I can think of several people that have prominent radio ministries that I want to make sure that I don't say goodbye to if I should meet them in an airport and we part. We'll say hi and be friendly, maybe. But when we, I won't say goodbye if I'm going to be scriptural. False teachers. John did not want any of God's children to do three things. Give a false teacher the impression that his heretical doctrine was acceptable. Wow. Second, become infected because of an association or possible friendship. Boy, I don't know. I'd probably be guilty there because there's a number of people that I do not respect that I don't call out in public. That may be a failing on my part. I need to pray that through. I've noticed people who make a career of doing that seem to be on a downward spiral. So I don't try, I try not to comment on other ministries. 
and finally give the false teacher ammunition to use at the next place he stopped. And I think that's the focus on Mary's house. If she takes in a false teacher, just even casually, he can use that to name drop and promote his wares, you see. And uh, so John is certainly admonishing us to not receive or encourage false teachers representing anti-Christian groups. Now, there's a gray area here where someone may have views different than our own, but that are not central. And that's where Augustine has this wonderful summary. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, agape. That's really the philosophy we try to adhere to in the Institute. Now, um, there's another grave reason that you should not that you should investigate everything you give to as a Christian when you donate to. Be careful. Because if you are giving to the wrong thing, God considers you a partner in it. There are ministries I don't think I want to donate to because I haven't done my homework. I don't know their doctrines. I'm not quite ready for God to regard me as a partner in X until I've investigated it. Now, is verse 10 a general principle or is it just a particular injunction for Mary as one who could inadvertently clothe heresy with the mantle of her approval? I suspect that this epistle is directed directly at Mary and the advice he's giving is to Mary. Whether or not we should extrapolate that to all of us, we need to prayerfully consider because we are called to hospitality. But this would seem to be putting fences around it. But then John continues, says, Having many things to write unto you, I would not write with email or paper and ink <laughs> because I trust... I'm kidding about the email. I uh, should not write with paper and ink but I trust to come unto you and to speak face to face that our joy may be full. Now this could be simply an allusion to intimacy and immediate imminency, or it could be a precaution to disclosures. David said a very similar thing. He says, my tongue is the pen of a ready writer. But there, in that word, in the psalm, we learn a lot of other things because in Psalm 50, 45, 1, the Hebrew term for there is translated the ready writer in the King James or skillful writer in the NIV is actually the Greek term of oxographos or tachographos which are shorthand writing and this, this is a technical term used in the Septuagint three centuries before Christ that was a common term on the street because the whole purpose of the Septuagint translation was a common Greek of its day so that term was a common technical term in the vocabulary of that day and it was a requirement for Matthew, if he's going to be a customs collector. So that's why we tie that all together to realize that Matthew was a uh, uh, tachographos, writing a writer. So, okay. And then the final verse, the children of thy elect sister greet thee. Amen. Now this verse also argues for the addressee to be a specific individual. And yes, Mary did have a sister, and it's mentioned in the very verse collection in which she's put under John's custodianship rather distinctively. Okay, a couple of addendums I'll add to this that I deliberately didn't want to include in detail, but I want you just to be aware of, and that's the emergence of what we call Marian apparitions. They've been going on throughout history. The deification of, the, of Mary by the Roman Catholic Church represents far more than simply a heterodox departure from biblical faith. Most of us, as Bible literate people, find the Roman Catholic deification 
very, very non-scriptural. It's worse than that. In addition to being a blasphemy on the deity, role, and person of Jesus Christ, this pagan contrivance appears to be the continuing vehicle for the execution of strategic demonic activities of the most sinister sort. Okay? Mary could also prove to be a, the common element uniting the religions of the world. That may surprise you. The Catholics, of course, venerate Mary, and the, the Evangelicals and Christian Together crowd, those are the Protestant leaders that signed, that, uh, they signed papers suggesting that the whole Reformation was just a misunderstanding. The Muslims, did you know that there is a chapter in the Quran on Mary? They believe Mary is one of the great women of Islam. The chapter of Mary, the Surah Maryam, in the Quran speaks of Mary and Jesus as a, as a prophet. And the New Age, Gaia, the Gaia community, Mother Earth. You see the link? You can begin to see how people could try to put them all under a Marian umbrella, if you will. And the Mary and the Gaia community, you can Google this and find out all kinds of foolishness. Now, the Marian apparitions. See, most Protestant observers tend to dismiss the sequence of sightings and encounters with what ports to be the Virgin of Mary as simply hallucinations or hoaxes or incidents of some well-intentioned religious hysteria at Lourdes and all these places that there were you know, uh, apparitions. That may be very naive on our part. Some of these incidents may well be hoaxes and nonsense. There are a significant number of them that evidence clear supernatural involvements and deserve our serious caution. I deliberately not get, get, I did not give you a full list. I just picked one of the most famous ones of these back in 1917's at Fatima. By the way, that town in Portugal was named after the daughter of Muhammad. But on May 13th, and then by by meeting a, an announced uh, appointment on October 13th, three children saw the Marian apparitions. They saw the first one. First one says, I'm coming back on October 13th. On October 13th, there were 70,000 witnesses that saw things in the sun and the sky that is absolutely staggering. And these three children were given prophecies. The last one, I think, now has passed away, but it's the only one that has it is the Pope. And there's a whole background thing you can get into. I don't encourage you to get into Just be aware it's there. But the point is, you can't explain some of this as someone's hallucination or someone's over-enthusiasm with good intentions carried away. No, it's much more complex. No, these things are, the term we would use, demonic. So be careful. Because they are on the increase. They are occurring in the hundreds around the world. And if you want to get into this, I believe Roger Oakland has written some books in this area. There are people, Christians, competent Christians, that are tracking some of these things. I deliberately have avoided them because i got better things to do with my time. But I want you to be aware of the fact that these are not just hoaxes and contrivances. There seems to be some real phenomenology in the background. And uh, since its impact is to separate you from the deity of Christ, I don't have to look further to know how to label it. Well, anyway, that's it. that concludes our thing. In your next session, I want you to read the epistle, as it's called, of 1 John. I suspect it's more than just an epistle. It takes the form of an epistle. 
I think it is just a very well-constructed sermon for all churches. It isn't unique to Ephesus or anything like that, I don't think. But read the whole thing by next time. But highlight, take chapter 1 is the one we're going to take. There's five chapters. We'll take five evenings. The first evening we'll take chapter 1, and we'll try to explore the key thoughts in there. But be prepared. It's very, very uh, enriching material. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you that you have given us your word. And we thank you, Father, that your word has already anticipated every heresy, every deceit, every uh, stratagem that Satan would attempt to bring upon us. We thank you that it's already anticipated if we simply do our homework. We do pray, Father, that through your Holy Spirit, you would open your word to our hearts and lives, that we indeed will be doers, not hearers only. Help us, Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit to put these teachings into our, into practice, into our own walk, not just in our notes that adorn our bookshelves, but Rather, Father, that would adorn our day-to-day, moment-by-moment choices as we aspire to hear those words from your Son. Well done and good, good and faithful servant. Father, we would commit to you without any reservations whatsoever. We commit to you ourselves that we indeed might grow and grace the knowledge of him and that we might be more effective stewards of the opportunities before us and more pleasing in thy sight as we commit ourselves into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer, our coming King. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the books of 123 John. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.